Good morning again, brothers and sisters. A joy to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to grab a copy of God's Word that you have there. Uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat pocket in front of you. That's our gift to you. You can take that with you. It's a joy to be gathered here on this Resurrection Sunday. It's a joy to preach and teach any Sunday, but uh, it's an especially a joy to preach on a day like today for me personally. Uh, even coming here this morning and knowing that it was probably a little bit larger crowd and the joy of today, it hit me that uh, as a preacher today, uh, the resurrection, Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting. He's already done all the hard work. Ours is just to talk about it and to tell you about it and to proclaim the great news that Jesus Christ is alive. We're going to do that this morning from Hebrews chapter 5. Now, if you're a guest, we're walking through the book of Hebrews as a church family, verse by verse. Uh, this morning, we just happen to come to a passage that's very fitting for us here on this Resurrection Sunday. Hebrews chapter 5, we'll begin reading there in just a minute. Uh, we live in a, uh, a world of messages, constantly bombarded with messages. You know that. There's something called an internet minute. The internet minute is a measure of all the messages that cross the internet every single minute, every 60 seconds. Every 60 seconds, every minute across the internet, 2 million Snapchats are sent every minute. You're thinking, oh, I better check mine right now. No, it'll be there. Don't worry about it. Every minute on the internet, 575,000 tweets are sent every single minute. Every 60 seconds, 16.2 million text messages are sent across the internet. Incredible. And if you're wondering, by the way, 65% of those are from girls and 35% are from boys, just say. <laughs> thought that was an important fact. We live in a world of messaging. We are bombarded with messages. We come to the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews, from the very beginning to the end, is declaring that God has delivered a message to us of eternal significance. One of the challenges living in a world of messages is trying to discern what messages matter and what messages are just fluff. We come to the book of Hebrews and there is a message here of eternal significance for you and me this morning. Just as a review a little bit, I want to begin in Hebrews 1.1. I'm just going to read this. You don't have to turn there. Then we're going to jump to Hebrews 5. Just to remind you of the point of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. The Bible says God has spoken by our fathers and by the prophets. The point is we have a God who is revealing himself. You would know nothing about the greatness of God if he did not choose to reveal himself to us. God has spoken. And the Bible says in past days he spoke in various ways and many portions. And verse 2 says, but in these last days, now... These days we are currently living in, He has spoken to us in His Son. He has spoken to us most clearly. 
and most definitively in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. He, Jesus, upholds all things by the universe, or in the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, this Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having completed everything necessary for you and I to have a relationship with God. The book of Hebrews, just to remind you, is written to unashamedly declare the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ above all things. The book of Hebrews is written to a Jewish community, and to this Jewish community, the writer is declaring that all the pictures and promises and practices in the Old Testament find their ultimate fulfillment in King Jesus Christ. He is the better revelation, he is the better rest, he is the better sacrifice, he is the better high priest. Now I want to bring this home to us this morning, and you say, well, we're not a Jewish community necessarily, maybe you are a Jewish background, the point is, the truths that are here have immediate application to your life and my life this morning. And I even want you to know, within this letter that was written 2,000 years ago, there were several different audiences within this Jewish community that were hearing this letter. There was one audience that were true believers in Jesus. They had come to recognize Jesus for who he was, as Savior and Lord and sin-bearer, and they had seen him as worthy of their lives, and they had surrendered their lives to Christ, and they were suffering because of it. They were true, genuine followers of Jesus by faith. At the same time, there was another group of people that was receiving this letter, and they were, they were hearing this letter of Hebrews, and they were intellectually convinced. They could even answer all the questions, and they knew all the Bible truths, but they had not yet come to the place of genuine faith in Christ and Christ alone. They had not seen their own unworthiness and his own complete sufficiency. They had not surrendered their lives to Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is pleading with them, look to Jesus and his all-sufficiency. He is worthy of your life. The writer of Hebrews continues that and then he comes to a great reality in chapter 5 that we're going to land on this morning. I want you to look with me in verse 7. And to these different groups that were listening and even to us today, he's going to declare an incredible reality that I want you to hear this morning about Jesus Christ. It begins in verse 7 of chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews continues. He says, in the days of his flesh... Speaking of the human life of Jesus as he walked on earth, he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence or because of his submission to the Father. Verse 8. Although he was the Son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned? What's that all about? And being made perfect, 
he, Jesus, now here's what I want you to hear this morning. This is one of those messages of eternal significance for you and me. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about Melchizedek in the weeks ahead. The point is this. Here's your big truth today. Here's the message I want you to hear from this text today. Jesus Christ is the and the only source of eternal salvation. The writer of Hebrews is longing for these that are hearing not just to know facts and not just to be able to quote stuff, but come to the realization that Jesus himself is all-sufficient and the source, he says, of eternal salvation. See, this Hebrew community that was receiving this letter, they, they knew some really important realities about life. <laughs> Maybe some of you need to be reminded. Maybe I need to be reminded this morning of some of these realities. The Bible from the beginning to the end portrays this reality that's absolutely true. Our God who created us and who gave us life, He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely glorious and righteous and perfect. He is not like you and me. We are the created ones. He is the creator. He is absolutely holy. And at the exact same time, every single one of us human beings, we are desperately sinful. And the tension of the Bible from the beginning to the end is basically this question. How can a perfectly good and just and righteous and holy God have communion and fellowship and know us people, we who are sinful and unrighteous and dead in sin and trespasses? That's the tension of the Bible. So the writer of Hebrews from beginning to end is holding out Jesus, kind of comes to this climax here in chapter 5 and says, the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the source of of eternal salvation and the only one who can bridge perfect holy God, sinful man, and bring those two together in this relationship called eternal salvation. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Only Jesus is able to do that. That's the message of Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Now, what I want to look at for just a few minutes, particularly in verses 8 and 9, is this, okay, how can Jesus do that? So you may be sitting here and you go, yeah, I've kind of heard that my whole life. And, and, I, and yeah, I, I think Jesus is probably who he says he is. What, what does that matter? The writer of Hebrews is presenting an argument here, especially to those who know a lot of facts but have never crossed the line of faith. And, and he wants to declare Jesus is the only source of salvation. And then he gets into these verses and he says, let me show you how that's possible. How can he be the only one that can bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God? Look with me. He says, verse 7, in the days of his flesh. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is about to present some things that were true of Jesus in his incarnation when he walked the earth for 33 years. That then he comes back and says, because of these things, because these were true, he says, I'm making this argument Consider this Jesus. He is the only one. He's the only one. What are they? Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 9. And being made 
perfect, he became. This is an argument from the author. There were some things that took place in the earthly life of Jesus that now the author can say he became the source and the only source of our eternal salvation. Let me give you a few of these in big idea form, all right? Big idea number one is this. I'm going to give you three this morning very quickly. Big idea number one, Jesus is the perfect Son of God. Jesus is the perfect Son of God. This is the argument of the author of Hebrews. Jesus is fully God. He holds it out here and he says, although he was a son, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews holds that very clearly. Clearly, this one Jesus, is he's fully God. That's huge for us this morning to keep that in mind. He can't be the source of eternal salvation if he's not. Hebrews 1.8 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. What does that mean? The writer of Hebrews is being very clear. Jesus himself, God of very God. He is himself God. Not anything less. Not just a good man. Not just a teacher. Not just a rabbi. Not just a prophet. God himself, the second member of the Trinity. Hebrews 1, 8, 10, and 12 says, speaking of him, he says, But you, Jesus, are the same, and your years will have no end. Says this Jesus is of eternal nature, forever, infinite. He's perfect. He's fully God. Jesus is the perfect Son of God. And at the same time, watch, this is huge. The writer of Hebrews holds out, and he's fully man. Jesus became fully man. Verse 8, or verse 7, he says, in the days of his flesh. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, this Jesus that I'm calling you to consider, you must know he is the eternal God who has lived forever. But there was a point in time when he took on flesh and became a man. Why was that necessary? Why did that have to happen for Jesus then to become the source of eternal salvation? Hebrews answers that. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Speaking of the significance of Jesus becoming a man like you and me. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, meaning we're human beings, Flesh, blood, bone, skin. He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. Now, the writer of Hebrews is holding out. It is of eternal significance for you to understand this morning that the way Jesus became the source of eternal salvation is he had to become a man. He became a man. He partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. In other words, he had to die. And to die, he had to live. He had to be a man. He took on flesh. Right of Hebrews says you have to understand it was Jesus' death that was necessary to be the source of eternal salvation. In Hebrews chapter 5, you've got to understand it was his life that was also necessary For him to be the source of eternal salvation. 
So, Pastor Mike, I'm not sure I'm getting all that or, or, the, or the weight of the significance of this. The writer of Hebrews, again, he's making an argument. He says, look at the life that Jesus lived that, that came before the death that he died. All of that was necessary for him to become the only source of our salvation. I can read it again. Verse 8, he says, although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Talking about his life. Why is that important? And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Okay, so so what had to happen in the earthly life of Jesus, in his flesh, for him to become the qualified one to whom we can trust our eternity? That's the question. He's going to answer it right here. Two things. Verse 8, he says, Jesus learned. The word learned here, he says, he learned obedience. The word learned is a form of uh, word discipline. it's, It's hard for us to get our minds around that the God man Jesus learned. Jesus learned to walk and Jesus learned to read and he learned to talk and he learned to ride a camel and he learned all these things that you do as you grow as a human being. But it's key here to say he learned, the phrase here is he learned the obedience. In other words, it's not just that he learned things, he learned the things that were necessary for him to fulfill and perfectly live out to be your savior. He learned And the reason him learning is so significant and why the Bible holds this out here is he did not learn obedience because he was disobedient. I mean, all our parents were saying, yeah, we got to teach obedience to our kids because they come in the world disobedient. And all God's parents said, amen, right? Not Jesus. It's not the point. It's not that he was a disobedient, rebellious young man. His parents had to teach him obedience so he could learn. No, 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 no. The point was he had to learn obedience as a man. He learned obedience as a man to prove and to show he was fully human like you and me. And the significance of that is Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew. He grew cognitively and he grew physically and he grew spiritually, demonstrating that he was fully man. And the author of Hebrews is taking these examples and he's saying, you have to understand, the reason that is so important is in order to be the source of eternal salvation, Jesus had to be fully man. And he humbled himself. He came as a child and he learned and he grew. And he learned everything necessary to fulfill this obedience that the Bible speaks to. Secondly, the Bible says he learned, verse 8. Then it speaks, verse 9, to how he lived. Why did the life of Jesus matter? Why did the way he lived matter? The writer of Hebrews speaks to it here. He says, verse 9, he says, and being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him it's important and i don't want to get too deep or too technical but the word perfect here is not quite the way we understand the word perfect the word perfect here is the word to tell us to tell us it means to bring something to its intended purpose 
to bring something to full completion, to fully accomplish something. The writer of Hebrews is looking at the life of Jesus from his birth to his death. It was perfect in the sense that it fully accomplished something. The way he lived brought him to a place that the writer of Hebrews can say he became perfect in the sense he became the source of eternal salvation. What does that mean? He did not become perfect from a place of imperfection, but he did progressively and experientially fully live out a real human life in absolute perfect righteousness and perfect obedience. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look at the life of Jesus. Perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. He learned, he grew, he perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly obeyed the Word. He is the one presented as the perfect righteous one. Let me just give you some quick examples. The perfect life of Jesus matters to you, beloved. Because without a perfect life to offer on the cross, you still need a Savior. And so do I. The writer of Hebrews is saying, consider this death of Jesus, yes, but consider this life of Jesus that was lived perfectly. He became, he was perfected, he became known as this life of perfection as he learned and progressively obeyed. I'll give you some examples. Luke 2.49, when Jesus was little, you have to look these up, I'll just read them to you really quick. He's with his parents, they, they're coming back from Jerusalem, they can't find Jesus, he's lost, they go back, he's there at the temple, they said, Jesus, what are you doing? And he said to them, why are you upset? What's the big deal? Why are you worried? Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Perfect priorities, always. Demonstrated that. Then in his life, it says in uh, Matthew 5 or Matthew 3.15, when Jesus was down at the Jordan River, he came to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John said, wait a minute, you want me to baptize you? You ought to be baptizing me, Jesus. Jesus said this, let it be so, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning, Jesus experientially lived out perfect obedience in every area so that at the end of his life he could be this perfect sacrifice for sin not just in theory reality perfectly faced temptation Matthew chapter 4 One of the many temptations of Jesus that faced temptation to sin just like you and I face temptation to sin And he perfectly responded to it. Matthew 4 verse 2 says, After Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. I guess so. You guys have been a few hours from breakfast. You're getting hungry for lunch right now. Jesus, 40 days. Said he became hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If, or better translated, since you are the Son of God, Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus, why don't you use that power of yours and that authority of yours for yourself? It's justified. You're hungry. You need food. Why don't you use that? If you're really the Son of God, since you're who you really are, you're entitled, Jesus. Turn those stones into bread. Jesus answered, no, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus perfectly responded 
not just in theory, in reality to every temptation. Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish, to fulfill. You know, we like this saying. We say, well, you know, we usually say this when we mess up or something. We say, you know, well, nobody's perfect, and you're right, except one. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to perfectly fulfill every single thing in the perfect law of God. Jesus, not in theory, perfectly lived it out on earth. To his parents, he showed perfect obedience. To the vulnerable, he acted in perfect mercy. To his disciples, he led them with perfect wisdom. To the authorities, he showed perfect submission. When wronged, when he was betrayed, when he was mocked and scorned, he responded with perfect patience and meekness. Father, forgive them from the cross. They know not what they're doing. Perfect response when wronged. The final night of his perfect life on earth as he prayed to the Father, John 17, 1, Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has now come. Listen to this. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4, Jesus said, I have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Jesus says, I have fully accomplished everything you set before me. This life lived in perfection before you, Father, is now coming to an end. Perfect life. Perfect life. So you come back to Hebrews. You come back to chapter 5 and verse 8 and, and, and get back into the argument of the author. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. He was human. Through what he suffered and being made perfect, not in theory, in reality. Progressively and experientially, he learned and lived a fully righteous and obedient life. And because of it, he became the source and the only source of eternal salvation. The writer of Hebrews, if you want to sum it up, is saying this. In order for Jesus to be the source of your salvation and mine, he, one, had to be fully human. Two, he had to fulfill perfect righteousness without sin as a human. And the author of Hebrews says he is that one and the only one. Consider this Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He's the only one. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, And it was fitting... For him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Not just in theory, but to demonstrate a life perfectly lived, so he could be the perfect sacrifice to die in your place and my place. Jesus, the only one, is the only source of eternal salvation. Now, I want to continue on. I want to show you something else in this passage really quick, and then we'll wrap it up. The author of Hebrews wants to hold out the life that Jesus lived as this perfect life. Therefore, his life on the cross was the perfect substitute for you and me. Back in verse 7, he says something really important. I want you to see this this morning. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, that's the Father, who was able to save him from death. 
And he was heard because of his submission or his reverence. Here's your second big idea. Jesus perfectly trusted through great suffering. You see, in the life of Jesus, you see a life of perfect trust of the Father. We know that Jesus suffered. We know that Jesus suffered hunger and pain and betrayal and abandonment. Since he suffered in all things as we are, yet without sin, so he could be our perfect high priest. But if you study this close, you realize, I I think the author of Hebrews has a specific event in mind in the life of Jesus. Not just general suffering, a specific event in the life of Jesus he's referring to. He says, he cried to him with loud tears and loud supplications seems that the author of Hebrews is referring to the Garden of Gethsemane that night before Jesus was crucified. Philippians 2 says that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And we know what happened that night in Gethsemane. Luke tells us, it says, And he, Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood. The submission and the obedience of Jesus reaches its climax here in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross. And he's wrestling with the Father and he's crying to the Father. But he does it perfectly. And he perfectly demonstrates trust in the Father. Verse 42 of Luke, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So he says, look at this event as an example of perfect trust, perfect submission to the will of the Father. And then I'm going to show you one final thing. It says he was praying. What exactly was he praying? It says he was praying that he was able to pray or he was praying to the one that was able to save him from death. And you read that and many of us think, well, I've heard that about Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying that God would remove the cup, and and maybe that's part of it. Is there any other way, Father? No, there's no other way. But this phrase literally says that he was praying to the one able to save him from death. The word from literally means out of. In other words, the night when Jesus was praying, he was praying in perfect submission and trust to the Father. And he was praying to the one he believed and trusted was going to save him out of death. In other words, the prayers of Jesus were not prayers expressing a desire to escape the cross. Rather, his prayers were praying, Lord, raise me from the dead. (laughs) So that the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ proves in an ultimate way that Jesus is this perfect one. This only one who can be your source of eternal salvation. Jesus, perfect life. Jesus, perfect trust. Praise the night before the crucifixion to the one who could save him out of death. He went to the cross. He died. And three days later, God answered his prayer specifically. And the Father raised him from the dead to hold him out with proof. Listen, Jesus is the only source of eternal salvation. Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now, in the final moments, I want to ask one final question. You come to verse 9 here. He says, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he then became the eternal source, or the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Your last big idea is this. Jesus is the only source of eternal salvation. Now I'm going to ask the team to come up and begin to play. And we're, we're going to transition just a little bit. We're not finished. So I don't want you to start putting stuff away and all that. But I do want to take this argument that has been presented by the author of Hebrews. And ask this question here this morning. How do we then respond? Because the Bible says here that he is the source of eternal salvation to all that obey him how do we respond first peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed jesus is our perfect and only perfect sin bearer second corinthians chapter 5 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the writer of Hebrews has answered the question of the Bible, how can holy God, sinful man, be reconciled together? And the answer is a perfect life, the death of Jesus, resurrected. He takes your sin upon himself and gives you his perfect righteousness. That's salvation. Only Jesus. Jesus says we must respond to this incredible message. He says to all that obey him. What did Jesus say? He says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's a response. In fact, the gospel message is not just an invitation. The message of the gospel is it's a command to respond to Jesus. He says, repent. Turn from all those human efforts. Turn from all that accomplishment in your mind that you think you've earned any way to God. Repent from your sin. Repent from your own righteousness. And believe in Jesus and Him alone as the only source of eternal salvation. Jesus said it this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, hold on, will lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. I want to give you just an opportunity this moment, just a minute. I'm not going to manipulate or pressure anyone in the room just to respond to the command of Jesus to repent and believe in him. So I want to ask you in this moment just to bow your head right there where you're seated for just a second. Let this just be a moment between you and your heavenly Father. The Bible calls us to repent, die to self. The Bible calls us to believe, turn in faith to this Jesus, the perfect one. Our sin bearer. Our resurrected Savior. And receive by faith, cry out to Jesus. Maybe that's here, you and you're here this morning and say, I don't know how to do that. The Bible says this, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Just a call of faith. Maybe you want to express something like this, a, a prayer. I'm just going to read a sample prayer to you. Prayer doesn't save you. But maybe this expresses the desire of your heart this morning. Lord Jesus, I need you. 
Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner and you are my only hope. Thank you for dying on the cross to forgive my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. I ask you to forgive me, save me. I surrender my life to you. Just with your head bowed this morning, if that's you, I pray. This morning that by faith on the authority of the word of God, you became a follower of Jesus this morning. We'd love to speak with you about that in just a few moments. We're going to stand and sing a song of response. Pastor Wes is going to follow that and give you some instructions of how you can respond this morning. Our prayer is today is the day of salvation for many in this room. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you that Jesus and him alone, you are the only source of eternal salvation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.